Good morning, everyone. This is Maya Thompson, intern for Law Matters Radio Show. Unfortunately, Sherry will not be able to join us today. She threw her back out, but she wants to thank the exceptionally talented group that are holding down the fort today, co-hosts Mark Barnes and Brian Watson. I'd also like to remind everyone to please go to the lawmatters1030.org and sign the petition for the state trooper who was killed on I-10 by a drunk driver. The story, as well as the petition, are on the events page. Now let's start the show. Good morning. Thank you, Maya, for that great introduction. Um, This is Brian Watson. I'm a special agent with IRS Criminal Investigation. Welcome to Law Matters. And I'm joined with my co-host today, Mark Barnes from Copper Canyon Tax and Accounting Services. And uh, Sherry uh, may never let this happen again, but she uh, (coughs) she may not. (laughs) She's letting the uh, inmates run the asylum, but we're going to hold down the fort for her. And we also want to thank John, our engineer. He's going to make everything look very seamless for us. So, Mark, tax season started when? Officially. For us, it started the first uh, Monday in January, but for most individual filers, the IRS started accepting tax returns on February 12th. So I filed already. I filed last Sunday. So okay. I got my return in on Valentine's Day, and it was accept- both returns were accepted, IRS and Arizona. And I noticed something new this year. There was this question on Bitcoin, and it asked me, have you ever, have you done any Bitcoin transactions this year? And I actually was doing a radio show up in Prescott, Arizona this week, and I got a caller, and he stumped me a little bit. He said, oh, there's this question about Bitcoin. When is it taxable? And I'm going, oh, no. That's, uh... <laughs> so let's let's start with that. I thought that would be the most interesting thing because it's new. When when is Bitcoin taxable? And, and what, sh- what should people be doing to stay in compliance with the tax laws? First, I want to say that doing your taxes on Valentine's Day sounds very romantic. <laughs> Hey, well, to be to be, uh, I actually had prepared the return earlier, but I just sent the final. I sent the final. Um, I hit the final button to 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 send it. Okay. No, no, no. I actually made my wife dinner on Valentine's Day. What we actually do is actually a little. We don't just go out and pay for dinner. The rule in our house is we take turns every year, and we have to make the best dinner of the year. So this was my year this year. It was surf and turf. With a fancy dessert. And then here's the other thing, Mark. We actually have to make our own cards. My wife and I started this years ago. You have to make a homemade card. So that's a whole lot harder than going to Target and buying a card in the card rack. So. All right. I'll give you a break. Thank you. So let's talk Bitcoin. Okay. So Bitcoin or any of the other digital currencies, um, the question actually appeared last year, but it didn't show up on the tax return um, but new for 2020 it is right on the front page. And the question really wants to know, did you receive or buy or sell or have any other crypto transactions? Now, the fun part with Bitcoin is that you could have a transaction without even recognizing that you have a transaction. And so, first of all, there's mining, and that's a business activity, and that's one way to receive it. Or you could just buy some coin through one of the different wallets that are available out there. But they have these things that are called airdrops or hard forks, and both of these activities could result in you acquiring Bitcoin during the year. And all of those things need to be kept in mind as you're answering that question, yes or no. And the reason that the question is there, and this is probably the most important part of the conversation, if you check no and then sign your tax return under penalty of perjury that is true and correct, and later it comes out that the answer was yes, you have filed a fraudulent tax return. And that extends the amount of time that the IRS has to look at your return and deal with this Bitcoin item. So if you think you do, if you do, you're better off checking yes versus trying to be slick and and hide from the government. This is a a digital currency where every single transaction has been recorded since the coin was invented and it's out there and it's available and we're only a few years away from technology catching up with the the people that are hiding underground. Well, I 
as a special agent with the IRS, I know that a lot of the criminals that we investigate utilize Bitcoin for nefarious purposes. They use it for the anonymity. Um, it's just, it, it, unfortunately, but I'm jaded because, <laughs> well, I'm jaded because that's what I see. Now, I know that virtual currency is completely legal and it's just another option. So I just have to remember that. Now, there is one other question that we always get on the tax return when if you file using electronic software, which is the best way to go, and you're doing it yourself, it asks you about foreign bank accounts. Yes. Why is that, Mark? Foreign bank accounts, uh, that's actually something that popped up um, probably a little over a decade ago and was the result of 9-11. And it it popped up that people were moving currency around and, and holding money offshore, and some of this was being used to fund terrorism. So the United States Congress, IRS, came together and put together this series of questions where they're asking about your foreign assets. And there's, I believe, five questions on there that we go through, and we ask every single person that comes in our door. And one of those is about your foreign accounts. And having a foreign account, just like having Bitcoin or any other stock or any other asset, doesn't result in taxes due. It's merely a disclosure. And so the basic rules are if you have a value at any time of the year that exceeds $10,000, you have an FBAR filing requirement, and you're really just disclosing to the IRS where you have money. Um, if you don't disclose the money and it gets found, the penalty starts at 50% of the account value. So it can get very expensive very quickly. And we do lots of FBAR filings every year. And we also do lots of Bitcoin reporting every year. It's a common occurrence. It happens a lot. Um, and I spoke with a guy yesterday that we file an FBAR for every year. He's got property in Germany. He's got bank accounts in Germany. He's got bank accounts and assets in Canada. It's just a part of his life. So full disclosure, that's the best way to stay out of trouble. I would agree from my point of view. Hey, before we go on to our next topic, um, Sherry wanted me to mention the upcoming auction for Law Matters. It, so tell your family, tell your friends. Um, we'll get more and more information as, as we get closer. But there's going to be all kinds of cool things to uh, bid on, resort stays, jewelry, limited artwork, and even lunch with law enforcement agents. Or you basically auction off uh, sheriffs, deputies, special agents. So, so you know, the more people that you tell about this auction, the more money that is going to be raised for law matters. All right. The other day, someone asked me about offers and compromise. Um, a lot of us have heard these ads on the radio or um, advertisements on TV where you have these people telling these great stories that, oh, I settled with the IRS for 10 cents on the dollar. And it's kind of like this let's make a deal, and it sounds too good to be true, and there's these companies that advertise it. So, Mark, we're talking about offers and compromise. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so so what is an offer and compromise, and how does it work? An offer and compromise is it's different than is advertised. Let's start there. There's no negotiating with the IRS. What it comes down to is a mathematical formula and your ability to pay the debt that you have. Right now, in 2021, we expect to see a large uptick because of the economy in 2020. There will be people that had tax liabilities in 19 or 20 that are now unemployed or their businesses declined substantially and they're unable to pay their debt. So this is a real program. It's just not this magic of me calling the IRS and negotiating with them and them just accepting some random number. It's all based on math and your ability to pay. So if you have a million dollars sitting in your checking account and you owe the IRS $100,000, they will not accept less than $100,000. That's You have the assets to cover it. If you're about to be homeless, if you can't feed your family and you owe the IRS that same $100,000, they will work with you. Um, my advice would be if you find yourself in this situation, you want to contact somebody that's going to charge you a consulting fee to determine your eligibility. And then once you've determined if you're eligible for this program or one of the other programs, then you do a separate engagement to get you in compliance and push through that program, whether it's an offering compromise 
or currently not collectible or a partial pay installment agreement. Don't just go into somebody that's going to charge you one giant sum of money and makes promises if they haven't analyzed your specific situation yet. So I've spoken to the people in the offer and compromise unit at the IRS because as part of one of my investigations, I actually wanted to get my hands on their application to see if there were any false statements made in there. And I was just asking them questions about the process. And they told me that actually most of them are rejected. And they're rejected not because the IRS is mean, but the IRS is uses the same criteria that you just mentioned. You, what? How many? How much assets do you have? If you have a million dollars in property and you owe a hundred thousand dollars, they're not going to give you the ten cents on the dollar. They say you can sell some of that property, and likewise, it's your future earning potential. Yes. If you're thirty or forty years old, you have a whole lifetime of salaries available to pay it off. And um, but if you're seventy-five years old and retired, and that's a whole different story. So. They're going to look at all the information and, and, and make a decision. But like you said, some of these companies out there will charge you thousands of dollars just to get you in the door, and you could do the same. You could get rejected by doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I do like your idea of actually consulting someone with a small for a smaller fee to see if it's even worth even worth your time. Now, I recommend payment plans to people. I've met many of my friends who, for one reason or another, have gotten behind in their taxes. Um, they were unemployed. Um, they were sick. They had a bankruptcy. I mean, things happen. And the IRS does not want you to hide. I mean, we want to, we want to get you back in the system, but we, you know, we, we do understand that things happen. How do payment plans work, Mark? And how would someone go about doing it? Can they do it by themselves? Do they need a professional? What, what, what do you tell people about payment plans? Sure. So when we get into any of these things, whether you're in debt to the IRS and are unsure of your ability to pay, or if you're making some type of a tax decision or a corporation election, all of these things should start off with talking to somebody that's knowledgeable in that area and outlining all of your options. There's a lot of people that walk in my door that have IRS debt, and a payment plan is really their best option. And what that is, is it's an extended period of time where you'll make payments to the IRS to satisfy that debt. And during that time period, as long as you're making those payments, they will cease all other collection activity. If you're making your monthly payments, they're not going to seize bank accounts. They're not going to seize your car. They're not going to take away any of the other things that you have, as long as you're in compliant with your payment plan. And there's also a partial pay installment agreement. And that's the same type of a thing but you don't have the current ability to meet the defined payment under a standard installment agreement. And basically the formula is you take the debt that you owe and you divide it into seven years, and that's the payment. What about bankruptcy? How does that work with taxes? Bankruptcy is an option, um, and I don't have all the rules memorized, so... Well, I certainly don't either. That's why I asked you. So <laughs> uh, It's not something that we deal with a lot, but you can file for bankruptcy and your taxes can be included, but there's three rules and basically the debt has to be aged. You can't file your tax re- return today and next week go to a bankruptcy attorney and have those debts erased. They, I think, believe they have to be two years old. Um, again, that's just... The rules are on my desk. It's not something that we deal with. There's two years. The taxes had to have been filed a certain period before that. Um, but we don't file. We're not an attorney. We don't do that type of legal work. So that's something that you would work with an attorney on. And there's, again, there's attorneys that specialize in bankruptcy and tax debt. But it can be included if your circumstances are are there. So the new for the tax year, we talked about that Bitcoin question, but also... On the front page of your return, you can actually deduct donations to charities um, even if you don't itemize. Correct. So, you know, you know, taxes are complicated, and that was a new new thing this year. But I knew about that, but I believe that's part of the CARES Act. And even if you're someone who does not have enough donations to get you over the um, standard deduction threshold, there's that $300 provision. So... How do people um, take that deduction, get credit for those deductions they made this year? 
so there's there's two sets of rules here. Thank you, Congress. <laughs> Keeping us all busy. Effective for the 2020 tax year, there is a deduction available that's total of $300. And you'll go through your process. You need to, you know, in my office, we record everything. Even if you don't have enough to itemize on your federal return, I still want you to bring in all of your charitable contributions, your real estate taxes, your medical expenses, because we may be able to do other things with those. And this year, one of those things is move $300 of your charitable contributions over to your federal return. So they need to be entered in as a charitable contribution so it will populate that field. Effective January 1st of 2021, the code section has been modified again, and now it allows for a $300 deduction if you are single and up to a $600 deduction if you are married filing jointly. So, again, it will be important to keep track of that information. And all of these things are put into place because we have a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of people that are suffering, and Congress is trying to give the incentive to get people to donate and help out in their community, whether that's through food banks or the Red Cross or any of the other organizations that are out there helping people. Um, and I guess this would be a great time to say you can go to the Law Matters website, and you'd be able to donate up to 300 single and 600 married, and you'd be able to take that as a deduction next year, whether you itemize or not. That's a beautiful plug there. That's a beautiful <laughs> plug there. Sherry is is sitting at home right now listening, and she's going, nice job, Mark. Way to go. Hey, if, what is? have you ever had a client lie to you and or give you information that was false? And what did you do about it? So we're a... Uh, we kind of operate on a zero tolerance policy. Um, I I run a tight tax office, and we are focused on quality and working with our clients hand in hand on a variety of things besides taxes. We want to make sure that they're successful in all their areas. So I don't have time for people that come in and make up stories. Um, but one in particular, I had a guy a few years ago. He was not a client, but he did call me. And he was being audited by the IRS, and the way he described his situation, I envisioned one situation. I envisioned a, a disallowance of deductions because of basis, because he had mentioned a partnership. And upon reviewing his return, basically he had made up two businesses to offset his $100,000 of wage income. And he just insisted that this was correct, and this is... This should all belong on his tax return, and I had to send him on his way. There's really not not a lot I can do at that stage. I could have gotten involved in the audit. He's entitled to representation. It's one of his rights, but I, it, for the way he was acting, he was going to have to find that representation somewhere else. And then following up on that, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen someone try to deduct on a tax return? Oh, man. We'll come back to that okay. if we want to. Yeah, you know what? Because I stumped. We, we, we talked about some of the questions we were going to cover today. So one of the fun things we talked about was what is your first job? My first job, I worked at a car wash. And, and, and I remember I was making minimum wage back then. And I was 15 years old. And I had calculated in my head what that first paycheck was going to be because I was get the 335 an hour and I work 30 hours that week and then I also got some commissions cuz it was the car wash so if you if you upsell them the uh the little smells you put in the car and the wax and the rims and things like that and then all of a sudden I got my first paycheck and uh it was smaller than I first than I expected <laughs> and I started looking and there were some things in there I did not recognize and and uh my dad had not told me exactly what to expect on that first tax return. But I remember going, who the heck is FICA and why did this person steal my money? And uh, so w what is FICA and uh, why does that show up on the ta on, the, on your uh, pay stub? FICA. Good old FICA. Um, anytime I hear the word FICA, the first thing that pops into my mind is a scene from Friends where... Jennifer Aniston's character is she's so proud she's been working she's about to get her first paycheck and she looks at it and that's the who's this FICA and why are they taking all my money <laughs> so FICA is is actually the initials for the law and it's a terrible thing to put on 
a pay stub. It stands for the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. And this is you paying into both Social Security and Medicare. Um, there was a time period where it was listed as OASDI, which was much better because at least in today's world, people could go to Google and type in OASDI and find out that it stands for Old Age Survivors and Disability Insurance. And then they would at least be looking at, you know, they're heading in the right direction on what it stands for and what it covers. So it covers three main areas and you pay throughout your life. And the first thing that it covers is if you become disabled, doctor deems you permanently disabled, you will collect through Social Security disability paycheck monthly for the rest of your life. If there is a death and you have family, you have children, um, your survivors will collect checks until your children reach a certain age and your spouse will also receive that check. If none of these events happen, then you become eligible to collect Social Security, we'll call it retirement, although that's not what it is, it's a supplement, at age 62 and a half. And all of us have a full retirement age. For everybody sitting in the room, we should all be at 67. At 67, you collect 100%. If you collect early, you collect less than your maximum. And if you collect later, it increases. There's a lot of math that goes into this. Um, but this is one of those things that people get upset about. Nobody wants to pay into it. And a study was done two or three years ago, and it came out that 90% of Social Security recipients rely on that check for some or all of their monthly expenses, 90%. So when I hear people fussing about it, my first question is, do you consider yourself to be in the top 10% of savers in the country? And if the answer is no, say, thank goodness you had that thank, money available. Thank later. goodness you have that there because otherwise you need to have life insurance, which you should have anyway, to cover that death. You need to have disability insurance to cover something that would happen to you that would be a, something disabling. And then you would need to save for retirement. And you should do all three of those things anyway. But in my chair that I sit in in my office, I can see people's W-2s, so I can see what they're saving in 401ks and simples. I can see the amount of interest that they receive on savings accounts. I can see the dividends that they receive on other investments. I can see what they put into Roths, into traditional IRAs. And people aren't quite as good saving as they think they are. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. We are going to take our uh, break. Um, we will be back in a few minutes. Thank you. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Brian Watson filling in for Sherry on Law Matters, and I am with Mark Barnes this morning. Mark Barnes is with Copper Canyon Tax and Accounting Services, and it is tax season. So you need to get an IRS guy and a tax guy in to um, answer all your questions. If you do have questions, we uh, Mark and I can take your questions. Um, we've been talking about changes in the tax law, things like Bitcoin, um, talk about foreign bank accounts and things like that. There's always new things with the tax laws. Um, before we jump back into this riveting discussion, um, we uh, Sherry wanted me to mention to everyone out there the Law Matters auction that's coming up very soon. Things like resort stays, jewelry, limited artwork, and then auctioning off uh, special agents and sheriffs and deputies. And how interesting could that be? Go out to lunch with someone and really find out what they do and get some of those behind-the-scenes stories that they're not going to um, maybe share on the air, but one-on-one -on -one we'll find out. So tell your family and friends about this upcoming auction. Money raised for Law Matters for all kinds of great purposes. So uh, keep that in mind. All right. Something new, Mark, that I've been telling people about with the IRS is something called uh, the 1040X. Now, for people out there that don't know what that is, uh, the 1040X is an amended tax return. So I've already filed this year. I filed, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, on Valentine's Day, um, filed off, sent off my return because the filing season opened on the 12th. But let's say I was home this week and in the mail came a Form 1099 or a W-2 or something do you think, oh, no, I'm in big trouble. The IRS is going to come after me because I forgot some income. Well, there's 
you can always file an elect I mean an amended return the 1040x but in the past it's always been by paper. Yes. What what's new this year? So actually starting in August of last year uh, the IRS launched the ability to file amended tax returns electronically and I haven't used it yet. Thankfully, we haven't come across a situation where we've had to use it yet. But in the beginning, it was only available for the 2019 tax year. And from my understanding, you had to have filed the original return in order to be able to electronically file the amended return. Um, this is great news. As a preparer, the last thing I want to do is put something in the mail. I don't have anything against the Postal Service. But if I can do something electronically and it can go digitally from my computer to the IRS, it's faster and it's going to be more accurate than it going through the mail and having somebody on the other side have to open that and data enter it. Um, so this is great news. Time savings. We can get things addressed a lot faster, uh, especially when you look at a year like 2020 where you guys were working from home. Well, exactly, and the, especially with the uh, economic impact payments and the stimulus money that was going out, the people that got their money first were ones that had filed electronically. I, the, the best thing t- I tell people, if you want to get your refund fast from the IRS, is file electronically and use the direct deposit. And then that was it was so important last year with so many um, people working from home. Now, return preparers, you're a paid return preparer. Um, 55% of Americans use a paid return preparer. What are the basic requirements to be able to be a return preparer, a paid return preparer, and practice before the IRS? So there's a variety of different levels of credential that someone can have. But prior to all of that, you need to have a preparer's tax identity number, a PTIN, You need to have the ability to electronically file. So you have to go through the system there and be assigned another number. It's all numbers with you guys. Mm -hmm. So I have a P10 number. I have my electronic filing number. As part of that process, I had to fill out an application. I had to submit fingerprints. They did a background check. So there's some level of checking to make sure that I'm not, you know, completely a vigilante out there going crazy with people's information. Then you have to have software. And then all these things combined allow you to enter tax returns and submit them to the IRS electronically. If you're missing any one of those components, you will not be able to do that. Um, As a paid preparer, if I expect to, I believe it's 10, because I haven't looked at this number in like 15 years, I believe if I'm expected to prepare more than 10 returns, I'm required to submit them electronically. So... We meet that number every year, except for maybe the first year I was in business. I think I did eight returns the first year. Didn't make enough money to pay for the software, let alone anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but it went up from there. Went up from there. Um, so if, you, if you're going to somebody and they're claiming to be a professional paid preparer, and they tell you that they cannot electronically file your return, you should be questioning that. Um, there are cases where we cannot file a return, but I'm going to explain to you why... We can't. What document is holding this process up? And there's actually a specific form that we have to complete to tell the IRS why we are not electronically filing the return. But if you have a basic return and somebody says they can't electronically file your return, you should dig deeper into what's happening there because they should be filing your return electronically. How should a return prepare base his or her service fees for a client? This is... Let's see, what's the polite way to answer this question? (laughs) (laughs) People are going to charge based on the knowledge and experience that they bring to the table. And if you're calling two people and the price discrepancy is wide, you should be wondering why. And there's average fees. And although, I mean, you could go to Google right now and type up average tax prepare fees and NATP does a study every year and they put it out. It's available publicly and you can see what people charge as an average in your area so that you have some idea. Um, 
it's kind of like a doctor, a lawyer, or anything else. So you, you go, there's a fee that you expect to pay, and if you called one doctor and they're going to do brain surgery and they tell you it's $10,000 and you call the next guy and he says he can do it for $49.95, you might want to be concerned about the quality of work that you're going to get on that second call. But what if, if you walked in, someone walked in your office and they just were a W-2 wage earner? And then you had somebody who had multiple partnerships and a Schedule C and investment income. What there would be a difference there, correct? Absolutely, yes. A- and why is that? Complexity. Um, and if somebody calls in, we have a so we have a base fee, and our base fee is higher than what you'll see in a lot of other places. And that's primarily because we work on a lot of complex things. Um, at least half of the tax returns we file have multiple states. 85% of the stuff that we do has some type of a business attached to it, whether that's a sole proprietor, a rental property, a corporation, or a partnership. So we're working on these larger, more complex returns. But, yes, if you called in and, and you have complicated stuff, the price could easily double or triple or quadruple from a base fee, depending on how many additional things you have going on the return. And each one of those requires a a new set of skills to complete that and be able to review it and present that information accurately. And if you're dealing with somebody and they can't explain to you what's on your return, that should be concerning to you. So as a special agent with IRS, our agency is IRS Criminal Investigation. We spend a significant amount of time every year investigating the very small amount of return preparers who are shady, who are doing things not the way Mark does it. And one of the things we see, unfortunately, is return preparers who base their fee on a percentage of your refund. And you might think, well, that's fair. I'm getting this refund. I'll just give them a percentage of it. Why is that a huge red flag, Mark? With few exceptions, we are not allowed to base our fee based on a percentage of your refund. Um, it's against the law. It's in the code. And it really encourages people to inflate your refund so that they get a larger fee out of it. Um, there are areas where we can do contingency um, if we were doing representation work and you owe the IRS $4 million and we were able to settle that through a offering compromise or other program, we can have a contingency fee that's a percentage based on those kinds of things. But for regular return preparation, it, we are not allowed to charge percentages of refunds or anything else because I can't guarantee that anybody's going to get a refund. Absolutely. We're going to we're gonna take a call in a second, but I just had one follow-up question there. What... Um, have you ever told one of your clients, hey, I can get you a bigger refund than Joe down the street? No. And why is that? The facts are basically what they are. You've had a certain amount withheld. You have a certain liability that's due to the government. My job is to make sure that we've taken advantage of everything that's in the tax code. But if you owe, then you owe. You owe. So this is Brian Watson, uh, special agent with IRS Criminal Investigation, and I'm with Mark Barnes with uh, Copper Canyon Tax and Accounting Services. We have a guest caller this morning. Chuck has a tax question for us. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Yes, uh, in 2020, in August of 2020, I lost my wife. And uh, I'm an old-fashioned filer, so I do it with pen and pencil and paper. And... Uh, I'm going to be filing jointly because I can, but when I get down to the signature block for my wife, what do I put in there? So you'll be signing the tax return for yourself in your own slot, and then again you will just be signing your name in her slot as her representative. I, you mean I sign my name twice? Yes. And I put representative? Is that what I do? Yeah, yes, you'll be putting yourself in there as her representative, and you may want to attach. There's things we attach electronically, but for this situation, you may want to attach a copy of the death certificate. Um, You should have marked on the top the date of death. Well, won't the IRS know that? I mean, I've already sent that into Social Security and that. Don't they correspond with one another? They do, but these things take time. 
there's a, a process and there's items that move through more quickly than others. And oh, when you're mailing it in, and we kind of just covered this, when we mail documents in, you're getting somebody in the mail room that's going to first handle that and they're going to open that and it's going to go to somebody that's going to process that tax return. And these people may not have the credentials and the authority to actually see all the information that's on your account. They're just going to be entering in a tax return and this will just help them speed up that process of understanding why you've signed it as a representative. Okay. All right, sir. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the call. If anyone else has uh, calls, we have about 15 more minutes in the show. And uh, free tax advice from Mark Barnes here. So um, one of the things th- that we do in IRS criminal investigation is we warn people about tax-related and financial scams. And the, the number one thing on our IRS dirty does in the last four or so years has been phishing scams. And when I say phishing, those are phony emails, phony text messages, and things like that. And the thing about phishing scams is there it's a scam that's 100% preventable, meaning you actually have to do something to actually fall for it. And they're always trying to trick you into providing your personal information, your bank account information, and things like that. And just last week, IRS put out a press release basically um, targeting tax return preparers. So it's a scam where the preparers are going after preparers like Mark. And we want to warn tax pros out there about this scam. And obviously, I mean, right now, I mean, there's not a huge number of return preparers listening right now. So it's kind of a very a very targeted scam. But if you listen to what this scam is, it could be morphed into any different way. But this thing, the scam says verifying your EFIN before e-filing. And we, um, the EFIN is something that's needed to file electronically, just like a P10, the prepared tax identification yes. number, is needed. But this is basically what the body of the bogus email says. And like I said, this would be targeted to someone like Mark. In order to help protect both you and your clients from unauthorized fraudulent activities, the IRS requires that you verify all authorized e-file originators prior to transmitting returns through our system. That means we need your EFIN, e-file identification number, verification, and driver's license before you e-file. And then it goes on to say, if your EFIN is not verified by our system, your ability to e-file will be disabled until you provide documentation showing your credentials are in good standing to e-file with the IRS. Now, I know a guy like Mark is smart, and he recognizes this phishing scheme from a mile away. So, Mark, would you would you fall for that? No. We actually have, so two years ago, the IRS required us to have a data security plan in place when we renewed our P-10 at the end of the year. So you walked into my lobby right now, right in front of the television is our book that has our data security plan. And two of the items that are listed in there, for all my clients that are listening, please pay attention. We do not accept email that has attachments, and we do not accept email that has links. And the reason for that is I don't want anybody in my office to click on anything that is going to compromise our security and the security of all of our clientele. Do you use um, a portal in any way? Yes. For, for how does that work? And why should a good CPA firm, enrolled agent firm, tax firm have a portal for their clients to use? So nowadays, everybody should have a portal. Um, if you didn't in 2019, 2020 should have prompted you. If you go to the website, coppercanyontax.com, there is a portal link right on the top of that page. And what it does is it takes you to a secure location where you can either log in and update your documents directly to your account, or you can log in as a guest and update any or upload any information that you need to get to us. And what happens with that is it's going into a system where it's checked for viruses and malware and all the other terrible stuff that we don't want. And then it sends me an email stating that something has been uploaded. So from my side, then I have to go through a secure process, which has two-factor authentication. So I have to log in, and then it sends us an email or a text message with a code that we have to also enter in before we can log in. So no third parties can log in. And then we're able to access and download all of your documents. So it's a way for you 
to send information to me or your preparer in a secure way from anywhere in the world. A few years ago, we actually had criminals parking their cars in front of tax return offices trying to see if they could hack into your Wi-Fi and Mm -hmm. into your systems. And if you think about it, that's like the mother load of tax information. Because if I was a scammer and I was able to get the name and Social Security of every single one of your clients, plus their W-2s and all this information, then I could take that information and file a bunch of tax returns and uh, make a ton of money. So that's why you've you got to protect the Wi-Fi. you got to have that portal. So if anybody out there, if you have a return preparer, make sure you ask these questions. You know, do you have a portal? You know, how do, how do you protect my information? You know, is it is someone going to be able to steal it sometime in the future? And then one other thing, just follow I thought about this a second ago, is we definitely encourage people to file electronically for a variety of reasons. It's safer, it's faster, and things like that. Do you, Mark, do you give your clients a copy of their tax return after they've you filed the return? Everyone gets a copy. We have two choices. You can either get a paper copy and I would say that probably 50 to 60% of our clients still receive a paper copy of their return. And it's a full copy from the first page of the 1040, includes every statement and schedule and election statement that we're making. Or you can receive the same exact set of documents electronically, and it will be delivered through the portal. So when we're going the opposite direction and we're sending you something, you'll receive an email that says there's been a document placed in the portal And then you log in on your site, and then you can download the PDF. But, yes, every client gets a full copy of their tax return when it's completed. So one of the red flags that we see for the shady return preparers is they don't sign the return. Even if it's filed electronically, they don't put their name on it. They don't put their P10. We call those ghost preparers. They don't give you a copy of the return, whether it's a digital version or a paper version, and you can't find them the rest of the year. Because for you, your business is open year-round. Yes. So if someone gets that audit notice or a correspondence audit notice in August or September, they can call you up in, in a panic, Mark, Mark, the IRS <laughs> wants this more information to me. And then you say, look, no big deal. Send it to me. Let's take a look at it. I mean, that's the sign of a good return preparer. So when when we t- warn the public about the bad ones, Mark is the opposite. Mark is one of the good ones that he does everything right. I mean, I, I haven't been able to stump him this morning. Well, I did stump him a little bit about the question about the craziest deduction someone <laughs> someone ever took, and you still have you still have ten minutes to get that answer if you want to if you want to add to it. Now, um, a while back, you had told me someone called in and asked about net operating losses. Yeah, how does that work for for people who own a business? So net operating loss, it's kind of a funny thing. With every administration that comes in, they have their own idea of what a net operating loss should look like. So these rules change all the time. The basics of it, if you operate a business and that business has produced a loss, you have some options. We used to carry it back two years, and then we could carry it forward 20 under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they eliminated the carryback provision, and it would only carry forward. And so what happens is, and we just had one the other day, you have a loss, and you're a brand-new business. Okay, so we don't have anything to carry it back to. It's going to carry forward. So next year, when you have income, we can reduce your income by that loss amount. It reduces your taxes in the future until it's used up, and it really benefits you as you're starting and growing a business. But we're looking at 2020 now, and there's a lot of businesses that were really affected. I have clients that their second quarter revenue is down 25 or 30 or 40 or 50%. So they lost a lot of revenue last year. So we've brought back under the CARES Act some of the older rules, And what we have is we have a carryback provision now that's five years. And this is an automatic five years, or you can make an irrevocable election to carry it forward. And where this benefits a small business owner, if you were profitable in 16, 17, 18, 19, and then in 20, you lost a ton of money, you can take advantage of this net operating loss by carrying it back to one of those years where you were profitable and paid a lot of tax and get a refund of those taxes that were paid from several years ago. 
because of this net operating loss. And if that's not the case, if you didn't have profitable years or you just started up, then you would make this election and you would carry this forward, and next year it could reduce the taxes that you pay. We've had clients that have had fairly substantial net operating losses, and those have absorbed their income for two or three years in a row. So you have situations where businesses now have several years where they won't pay any income tax because they've had this loss. So this is a great opportunity for businesses that were struggling last year or are struggling this year. Um, the CARES Act modified it so that if you have a loss in 18, 19, 20, or 21, you can change those tax returns. You can amend those tax returns and take advantage of this new net operating loss rule and carry that back five years and get some hard-earned tax dollars back so that you can operate your business now and reduce the risk of going out of business permanently. And that's why it's so important to keep good records, either whether you keep your records yourself or you hire a bookkeeper or you have an in-house person who does it. It's so important. That way you have information to back it up. Now, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask about was 1099s. Um, Briefly, what is a 1099 and when does it need to be issued by a business owner? A 1099 is a reporting form, just like a W-2, and it can be used for a variety of reasons. Um, we issue them every year for royalties, for rents, for non-employee compensation. Um, in 2020, we've resurrected an old form. It disappeared in the early 1980s, but it came back this year. So we have the 1099 NEC, which is non-employee compensation. And this is going to be a form for people that were working as subcontractors or independent contractors for you. The basic rules are straightforward. They haven't changed since the early 1980s. If you pay a person or business $600 or more for services, you're required to issue a 1099. If you pay a person or business rental income of $600 or more, this is per year, you are required to issue them a 1099. For attorneys, if you pay attorneys at all, you're supposed to issue them a 1099. The exception is corporations, if you're paying a corporation. Now, the way that this works and the way that you resolve the mystery is you should be receiving Form W-9 from any person that you're going to pay that's not an employee. And on Form W-9, they're going to tell you, this is my name. This is how I'm operating my business. This is my social security number or employer ID number. And then you're going to use that information to issue the checks and to know at the end of the year if they're a corporation or if they're not and if you have a 1099 requirement or not. Um, the failure to file those 1099s is now up to $500 per occurrence. So if you are a business and you should have issued 10 of those, you could potentially be facing $5,000 in penalties. And what if someone told you, well, they didn't issue me a 1099, so I don't have to report that income I received? (laughs) Uh, I hate to laugh, but it comes up a lot. Um, All of your income is taxable. It's in the code, Internal Revenue Code, Section 61. All income is taxable unless specifically excluded under the law. So if somebody's paying you money for a service, that's taxable income, whether you receive the form or not. Um, the exceptions here are gifts. If somebody gave you a gift, that's not taxable, but that gets into a whole separate conversation about people calling things gifts. Um, if you're working for somebody, you're providing a service to them, and they are compensating you for that time, that's, that's earnings that needs to be reported on your tax return. All right. We see a lot of people working multiple jobs now doing what we call, you know, the gig economy, ride sharing, food delivery, things like that. Do you have any clients that do that? And and what what's different about their, their taxes? We do. We have lots of people that are working in the gig economy. And at the end of the day, these are sole proprietors. You're going to be treated and you're going to be taxed as a sole proprietor. Um These are conversations that you should be having on the front end. Um, Again, we're big into tax planning, and I can help you a lot more if you contact me when you start something. 
not hoping for that Hail Mary miracle pass in, you know, March or April. But you're going to want to keep track of all your ordinary and necessary expenses. Keep a mileage log with all your mileage. The, the ride-sharing companies will keep track of your mileage while you have a passenger in your car, but they do not keep track of your mileage to go pick that person up. So you could be losing half of your mileage by not keeping track of your own mileage. What What is the biggest mistake most people make on their taxes or fail to do? Because people are always worried, like, oh, I don't want to miss out on this deduction or that deduction. I mean, just in the last couple of minutes here today, I mean, what is the biggest thing that you see that people fail to do? Best advice? Uh, planning and record keeping. Um, if you're going to do something, develop a plan, whether that's, you know, internally at your house, at least coming up with a plan for record keeping or work with somebody. Um, if it's going to be a larger scale project, that way when you get to the point where you're filing a tax return, you have all the information you need, you've recorded all of your expenses and all of your income, and you have all of your deductions handy, and keep this in some kind of an organized fashion, and then know that you need to keep this information for the life of that tax return after it's filed. There's a period where it can be audited, and you need to keep all of your receipts for that same period, which is generally three years after it's filed. All right, and what did we not cover today? What do you want? What's your alibi? Information you want to get out to the fine people of Tucson Law Matters listeners this morning? Um, man, let's see here. Um, RMDs, your required minimum distribution from retirement accounts, those were suspended in 2020. Those have not been suspended for 2021. So if you are of age and you are required to take money from your retirement account. Make sure that happens in 2021. If you are out consuming food and beverage for business purposes, there is a 100% business meal deduction this year. The requirement is that the food or beverage must be provided by the restaurant or by a restaurant, and it needs to follow the standard rules of who, what, when, where, and why. Perfect. Hey, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, you've been super informative, and I know everyone out there uh, appreciates all this sage, wise tax advice. Um, this has been Law Matters. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, Sherry's going to be back next week as long as everything goes well. Um, uh, remember the auction coming up next month. Tell your family and friends. Uh, my name is Brian Watson. I've had a pleasure um, sitting in with everyone, and uh, everyone have a great weekend. Um, stay safe and uh, shop local, as Sherry likes to say.